Welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm Andrew Schwartz with CSIS. And on behalf of CSIS and the TCU Schieffer School of Journalism, welcome to David Sanger's Bar Mitzvah. <laughs> <laughs> we hope it ends well. Um, we're really privileged to have David here tonight and my boss, John Hamry, and the number one host on Sunday, Bob Schieffer. Let's give it up for Bob Schieffer. Yes. Bob, the floor is yours. Well, uh, I think you've written a bestseller here, David. This is one of the largest crowds that we've had for one of these this year. So uh, if, if they buy books, they may just come to find out what's in it and go home. But <laughs> That's happened, Bob. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, we all, and you all probably were like me. You thought we'd probably better uh, hear what David has to say before they haul him off to jail here because... <laughs> <laughs> this book has really stirred up uh, a lot of a lot of talk, both up on Capitol Hill and uh, and in the White House. Uh, let me just start, uh, David. Uh, I kind of always like to start with the news. What's the latest here? Uh, well, Bob, before we start, I just wanted to thank you oh, yeah. and and CSIS uh, and John, you for having us all here. I wanted to thank some some people out in the audience, starting with my wife Cheryl here. You know, when you write a book. You get to um, come up and talk to Bob Schieffer and to John, but Cheryl has been doing something really hard this past year. She's been teaching some of the neediest students in uh, at uh, Anacostia High School, and she's really had a, a, an amazing year doing it. But it's it's a lot of hard work, and so we we did a book and that all at the same time. So I wanted to thank her. Uh, my sons Andrew and Ned are here. Andrew headed off to Colorado College. My parents Joan and Ken Sanger. My sister Let's Ellen. Let people see who you are. We okay. want to say hello to, to Okay. The just watch us. Ned, you guys just all stand. Okay. And most important uh, for the purposes of the book, Bob, as you know, I'm incapable of like organizing my sock drawer, much less writing a book in the course of a year. So we had um, some terrific, and I had the luck of some terrific assistance. And you accused me before of actually not writing a word of the book. That's not true. I did the, you know, at least the acknowledgments, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, just to, to do a few more, um, Afreen Actor, who is here. Afreen, raise, raise your hand. And June Torbati, there's June. And Samantha Pitts Kiefer. And uh, Jessica Harrison uh, is here. And Lauren Barr. And someplace is Tim Maurer. Tim, where did you go? Well, was he your diversity candidate? Was he, he was our diversity candidate. And that's uh, <laughs> well, always beautiful. One that's right. That's right. So, um, so I just wanted to thank them all because, frankly, without their uh, work, uh, I'd still be on chapter three. <laughs> okay. well, that's good. So, so what's the news? Um, well, uh, as you say, the book has made a little bit of news for the uh, Iran revelations, uh, and that is the story of Olympic Games. I'm sure we'll get into it later on, which is a, a somewhat remarkable uh, operation that the, the Bush administration started and the President Obama uh, doubled down on to uh, try to get at uh, and have an, another way to get at the Iranian uh, nuclear uh, facilities. Um, but uh, there's a lot more in this book. Uh, this book tells the story of the president's journey on Afghanistan and Pakistan. It talks about the rise of China and what the administration learned along the way. Uh, it talks about uh, the Arab Spring and how it 
took the administration by surprise and how they responded to it. Uh, part of the fun that we had with some of the researchers was going a year after the Arab Spring to poke around the Middle East and see what that uh, looked like. Uh, and it, uh, it deals, of course, with uh, how they've handled uh, Iran, North Korea, some of the other troublesome areas. But it seems like most of the headlines were about one or two chapters, uh, so, uh, which, is, which is fine, too. Well, let me, let me just ask you about that, uh, because uh, uh, to bring everybody up to speed on what's going on, as, as you probably know, uh, uh, we have now had the Attorney General has named two U.S. attorneys, uh, to investigate where the leaks that came in this book and also a book uh, written by uh, Dan Clydman uh, over at Newsweek uh, came from. Uh, John McCain on Capitol Hill again today was saying that's not enough. He wants an independent counsel uh, to investigate where these uh, leaks uh, came from. Uh, can I ask you, David, has anybody contacted you yet? Uh, you know, uh, so far all I've been hearing is uh, from reviewers. Uh, but, um, uh, and, you know, the, the way these things unfold, you never know what it is exactly they're going to look for. Um, but only in Washington, Bob, would um, you come out with a book that describes the interesting policy issue, and I think there was a great public interest in, in laying out uh, the fact that the United States is using cyber weapons. Of course, the U.S. had said before it was developing them and had never said before that it had made use of them. And there are lots of interesting questions about whether or not the U.S. should be using cyber weapons, whether it opens, makes us more vulnerable uh, to others. But uh, only in D.C. would the only question be, how did that get out? And uh, uh, that, that is somewhat typical of Washington. But the... Um, the most important fact to know here is it got out because of a mistake that we described at the beginning of the first pages of the book, that uh, a programming error that allowed the, uh, the entire worm that they had uh, designed to leap aboard the laptop computer of an Iranian scientist who then left, uh, left the Natanz uh, enrichment plant, I guess went home, plugged into the internet, and it spread around the world. And at that moment, the Iranians knew that, uh, this was 2010, that somebody had designed um, a cyber weapon. Uh, and I, they seemed to, at the time, express some suspicions about who that somebody would be. And so that was the string we pulled on. But you know, the thought here that it's news to the Iranians that they were attacked by a cyber weapon, that's a little bit wild. The Iranians knew it. Did you, you were on Face the Nation. Uh, you and Dan Kleinman, uh, Clyde, Clydeman, both were on Face the Nation. And it, what struck me this week is when President Obama came out and said, uh, uh, these authors have assured me that this information did not come from the White House. I don't remember you saying that. Did you say that the information did not come from the White House? No, I think what I said on Face the Nation was that uh, this was an 18-month-long project that I worked from the bottom up and started with the the leak of that, um, uh, of that uh, uh, worm out of uh, Natanz. Uh, the phrase leaks for the rest of it, I think, doesn't really sort of do justice to the process of building a book. You talk to many, many people in many different countries, and you try to assemble as best you can the story of what has happened. Uh, but I don't think that we have said uh, anything about, uh, you know, what groups of people we spoke to or didn't speak to or, or whatever. 
Uh, Dr. Henry, you've, you've been in Washington a long time, like me. Uh, you've been through leaks investigations. Uh, what, what do you make of the uproar uh, over this book? Well, I, I must confess, uh, I, and I said this to David, that you know, if I'd been in government, I'd be pretty unhappy. You know, I mean, because you do operate uh, important actions that need to be kept in secret, and when some things come out, it is—it's an awkward moment. But uh, the underlying policy question: uh, Should we use a wider range of tools to try to influence other countries? It's—it's—it's it's, it's obscured by this debate over where the leak came from. And I think the, the fundamental question it, we'll get to once we get through the drama of the leak uh, is really that. Uh, you know, what do we think about these sorts of tools? Did we create more danger to ourselves by doing this? Uh, that ought, you know, that's in one sense the debate that we should be having uh, rather than this who shot John. I've, look, I've started a lot of investigations myself. They never end up well for the government. You know, so I think we're going to it's probably going to be a fruitless exercise to pursue that. We really ought to be getting to the larger policy question. Well, let's talk about some of that. Uh, David, one of the things you, you talk about in the book is uh, what you think uh, the Obama doctrine is. Uh, what is it? Well, President Obama doesn't want to talk about having a doctrine, and I wouldn't blame him, because any time a president comes out and says they have a doctrine, people like me walk along and try to figure out whether or not an individual action fits in the doctrine, violates the doctrine. You're asking all these questions. Um, so, you know, Dr. Hombre's been great about writing about doctrines since he got here, but I bet you didn't like doing it when you were in the Defense <laughs> Department. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> sure. um, and uh, if I had to say what I thought the two big elements of the Obama doctrine are, they are as follows. Um, first, President Obama is clearly willing to go use unilateral force when he believes there is a direct threat to the United States. So the bin Laden raid is an example. The use of drones over, um, uh, over Pakistan, uh, another issue that uh, I think they were concerned on leaks, not because of the book, but because of articles that have appeared uh, in the Times and Mr. Clyden's book, as, as we described in the, the so-called kill lists. Um, uh, and you see it in Olympic Games, uh, you see there uh, a willingness to uh, go into the sovereign, you know, violate the sovereignty of another country in the purpose of uh, trying to eliminate something that the president believes could be a direct threat. What those have in common is that they're all light footprint kind of, uh, of examples. In other words, the president sort of decided that the era of sending 100,000 troops for spending a trillion dollars over 10 years to try to change societies that may or may not be willing to change and that certainly resent our presence, that day is over. And so he needs some kind of tool to be able to deal with these issues, and the tool he has chosen uh, are, are these. The other side of the doctrine, though, is that when the threat is not a direct one to the United States, uh, when the threat is sort of a, a general concern, Syria, Libya, uh, there, he's, his main objective is to make sure that other countries that may have an equally or greater, equal or greater direct threat put some skin in the game, that the United States not always act as the policeman of the world. 
and that we wouldn't act until others also go in. And that was the whole message of Libya. And of course, in Libya, the NATO forces were ostensibly in the lead. They also ran out of ammunition, always annoying when that happens. Um, uh, and the US had to go in and sort of, sort of resupply. So at moments, it has been difficult. Syria is an example where it's been really difficult because everybody's been frozen by the fact that the United States isn't willing to go in by itself and others are resistant, including uh, the Russians. I was at a luncheon today where Secretary Clinton uh, said that uh, attack helicopters were coming in in support of the Syrian government. She seemed to suggest they were from Russia. Uh, That seemed newsworthy uh, to me. She didn't quite say they were Russian attack helicopters, but uh, she immediately went on to discuss uh, Russia and her concerns about and they're them. coming in on the side of... they are coming in presumably on the side of the of the Syrian government uh, so um, she was clearly concerned about this and so these are all examples of uh, cases where the United States has found that the doctrine has run into some limits who makes and but it, I can't imagine any president that wouldn't embrace those two principles. Mm. I mean, if it's really serious, we're going to do it, no matter what. And we're always trying to find somebody else to do stuff we don't care about. I mean, we, you know, we uh, didn't go into Rwanda. A lot of people feel we should have gone into Rwanda, but we, right. we just didn't. We, uh, we, didn't, we didn't go into uh, the Congo. You know, we helped... You know, other countries go into the Congo. We, you know, we didn't go into the Central African Republic. We helped the French get in. I mean, we, in one give sense, you one, it's... Give you one example, John, though. I think the president's team would probably say, if they were speaking about this doctrine, that Iraq was a case where, in their minds, it didn't pose a direct threat to the United States, and we did take the lead to go in. Well, I, but like every president seems to define themselves about what they didn't like about their predecessor. Sure. And that's in much the quality of this. But in some sense... They're quite similar because both of them wanted to demonstrate a unique new way to accomplish a national goal. That's right. I would agree you know, with that. With, without really having a strategic frame of reference for either of them. Who makes the foreign policy decisions in this White House, David? You know, what strike? Who makes the foreign policy decisions in this White House? What st- struck me in the reporting for confront and conceal, is that when the president first came in, he cast a very wide net on foreign policy decisions. And here, think about those photographs we saw when they were deciding on the Afghan surge. And there were eight or nine meetings in the Situation Room. They invited in almost you know, everybody in the U.S. government who had an interest in it. There were days when there were briefings on... Um, the Pakistani nuclear threat. There were days when there were budget concern briefings. There were briefings on the Taliban. And you'd get these photographs released. It was a very crowded, very crowded sit room, which, and it, was, it turned out to be a very leaky sit room as well uh, at, at the time. And so there were a lot of news reports about what went on in those meetings. Fast forward uh, one year when the president had to decide how fast troops were going to come back out. No sit-room meetings that we saw pictures of anyway. A very small group of five or six officials, uh, Tom Donilon, the national security advisor uh, by that time, Dennis McDonough, his deputy and a very long-time uh, uh, aide uh, to the president, um, Secretary Clinton and Secretary Gates at that time. But even in that decision, 
they appear to have been brought in relatively late in the process. Vice President Biden, for sure, who had lost the first round but sort of won the second round here. Um, and uh, in the case of Afghanistan and Pakistan, the advisor for Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, uh, General Douglas Lute, Lieutenant General Douglas Lute. Um, but the group appeared to have gotten very, very narrow. And I would say that in the decisions that have followed, it has stayed narrow. Let's uh, talk a little bit about China. Uh, you, uh, you brought out a very interesting uh, point uh, in the book. You talk about how the Chinese interpreted President Obama's willingness in the beginning to engage them as weakness. And I guess the question is, how long did it take the White House to figure that out, and did they change their strategy? They did change their strategy, and it took about a year. Um, the beginning of the uh, the beginning of the administration, we saw uh, an effort to bring the Chinese in basically as equals, at least on the subject of economic management. And so there was a meeting in London. You may recall it was the first big meeting of the G20 that uh, was supposed to deal with the financial crisis. And President Obama met with Hu Jintao. I think it was their first meeting as as presidents. And there was discussion of a G2. You know that that the world's first and second largest economies would solve these problems themselves. The Europeans and the Japanese weren't really in love with that phrase. Um, but the concept was that the two big um, economic superpowers would be in charge. As the year wore on, it became increasingly evident to the administration that that was, in fact, regarded as a sign of weakness. And by 2010, of course, you saw the Chinese beginning to stake claims down in the South China Sea, declaring that certain islands were their territory, and so forth. And when that happened, uh, you began to see the administration push back a bit. And that accelerated in 2011 uh, and led to what the administration briefly called the pivot until the Europeans asked the question, what are you pivoting away from, us? Right. So they changed it to rebalancing. Uh, but uh, that was certainly an effort to try to push back, put some limits, almost an electric fence around where the Chinese were going to go. Whether that works, whether you can do that without making the Chinese feel as if they are being contained is really an open question. But, but, uh, but I think, in, in fairness, um, the first year of the presidency, he, there weren't confrontational issues with the Chinese, but there were in the second year. There were five or six episodes at sea where um, we had some brushing up against each other in the South China Sea. Uh, they were our reconnaissance uh, activities, and uh, the Chinese responded. I, th I think we would miss the story uh, without recognizing there were two sides in this. I think the the, the so-called change in the Obama administration's attitude really in some measure was responding to challenges. At one point, we sent a, a destroyer you know, to be there to make sure that there wouldn't be a follow-up incident. So I, I, it, it, it partly was a change in thinking on the part of the Obama administration. It also was a, a change in behavior that we had to deal with. Uh, Dr. Henry, um, just uh, how would you... Uh rate this administration and how it's dealt with foreign policy uh, uh, thus far? You know, this country is tearing itself apart on, in this election, but it's about domestic policy, not foreign policy. 
I mean, there's a fairly strong consensus on our foreign policy that the president has, I believe, uh, carried out his initiatives fully consistently in the mainstream of, of American foreign and security policy. Uh, stood up firmly in Asia when that was called for. He, uh, he followed through uh, in Iraq. There are some, some people question that he pulled out too quickly in Iraq, but that's not controversial with Americans, maybe with the military, but not average citizens. Uh, he did surge more forces into Afghanistan beyond what President Bush had put in. This is a very traditional, uh, and I would argue centrist, foreign policy, and as a result, there's not great controversy about it. I mean, it's controversy over this. Did they leak documents to make them look bigger and brighter and shinier than they are? I mean, but it's not about the content of the policy. Would you agree with that, David? I've seen a little bit on content, but it may not be for real. So um, Governor Romney, in the course of uh, doing the, uh, getting his way through the primaries, um, seemed to take positions that were significantly to the right of even where many of his, not all of his, but many of his advisors were. So uh, take Afghanistan, for example. Mm -hmm. When the news came out that the United States was conducting negotiations with the Taliban, no surprise to anybody uh, in this room, it's been an effort they've been trying to get going for, what, a year and a half, two years now. Um, You heard Governor Romney say he wouldn't um, negotiate with the Taliban. He would defeat the Taliban. And that left actually some of his own advisors asking the question, well, how long would that take? We've already been there 10 or 11 years. How many more troops would that take? And you haven't heard him repeat that uh, uh, since. You have also heard him make the argument that the United States has backed away from global leadership. And I think that gets to that second element in the Obama doctrine that I was talking about. Leading from behind. Yeah, the the concept of leading from behind, not my favorite phrase, but, but I think one that is... Um, somewhat telling, um, is one that the United States should not be involved in. But then when you ask the specific of what would you do differently, would you go into Syria with American troops unilaterally, you don't get a a difference that sounds uh, all that great. And Iran has been an area where uh, Governor Romney has repeatedly said he thought the president had been weak. But I think the one area, and you bring it out in your book, David, uh, that I think is a substantial difference, and uh, and that was when President Obama implied a deadline for pulling out of Afghanistan. I think that's that's one that genuinely is a dividing point, and I think is a an issue. Certainly, the military community is apprehensive about Mm -hmm. that. It's probably dramatically circumscribed the diplomacy. Right. Uh, you talk about that again in the, in book. the book. And that's probably the most important defining difference. And it's not just the military that was concerned about it. There was a big debate within the administration. Secretary Clinton mm-hmm. was uncomfortable with that as well and uh, expressed the opinion internally that it's fine to have a deadline for pulling up, but you might not want to announce it. And then there was this great moment uh, when Henry Kissinger went in and went to visit the, the team that was negotiating with the Taliban. And... Uh, he said, well, two things. Don't set a deadline, because if you do, they'll just wait you out. And the second thing he said was, um, once you begin withdrawing troops, it's like eating popcorn. You can't stop. And then he paused and said, especially in an election year. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, before I forget it, uh, you have uh, one chapter in the book that uh, 
uh, I found uh, a little bit scary, really, but, but fascinating, called the bomb scare that describes there are a couple of days in 2009 when the administration actually thought that the Taliban had somehow gotten a hold of a nuclear weapon. Yeah, this was a, a, remarkable, a remarkable moment. There are bits and pieces of this that were reported prior to, to my book, so I don't want to uh, take full credit for it, but uh, I sort of dug down into it. It turned out that they believed the Pakistani Taliban had gotten uh, either a weapon or the, com- or the material for a dirty bomb. And this was based on a series of intercepts where, of course, they're translating out the conversations. And there's some question about whether or not they were hearing the translation right. Okay? So one possibility is they just got, got that wrong. The other possibility is the Taliban had bought something and been scammed by the Russians or someone else. That's happened before. That's happened before. Yeah. Um, but in any case, there were four or five days when people were pretty much on edge, and the president actually dispatched a nuclear search team to the Gulf. They did not go into Pakistan. And then they asked the Pakistanis to go search around a bit, too, which is sort of the polite way of saying, hey, could you guys check and see if anything's missing? You know? Uh, and they got back the report that nothing was missing, which was, which was helpful. But they were a little bit disturbed uh, by the fact that they discovered the Pakistanis didn't have a huge amount of technological um, depth in going off to search for this material. And it raised the question, if a Pakistani weapon ever did go missing, did they have the technology and the, the ability to, to find it with the speed you would need? And if you're wondering why it is that President Obama has decided on having an enduring force in Afghanistan just over the border from Pakistan, Partly it is, of course, to keep some stability in, in Afghanistan and to try to make sure Kabul doesn't fall. But partly it's in case what turned out to be a false alarm one day turns into something more serious. But could I resist, but we, it is virtually impossible to find a device once it's gone missing. I mean, the, our search capacity is... You know, we've got these Buck Rogers images or some satellite someplace that just beams in and homes in and there it is and it's that house. It isn't like that at all. It works it is, in the James Bond movies. It's in the movies, but it is not real. And so overwhelmingly, our focus has to be on prophylactic action. You know, setting up the control structures in advance, setting up the permissive action you know, procedures in advance so that you put as much preventative structure in place because if if one goes missing it is this idea of finding it is not a high what, what is the likelihood that the Taliban could get their hands on one well the you know the uh, the Taliban is a subsidiary of the Pakistani ISI the ISI is a subsidiary of the Pakistani army the army runs the production complex. And they manufacture more weapons a year than any other country in the world, with the exception of Russia. This is not a good combination. How many do they have? Is that I don't think that there's a no. public number, but, uh, you know, hundreds. Hundreds. And are they big? Uh, the kind we call big ones? Are they tactical? What are they? <laughs> it's well beyond what I really know. Um, they are, uh, well, I, we don't know. 
but we do know that they are tactically relevant. I mean, in the sense that you, they're not giant things that take huge, complex delivery structures. They would, you know, they're meant to go on a missile, mm-hmm. for example. Just to add in on, on that point, because there's a, a little bit about this in Confront and Conceal, um, one of the concerns that the Obama administration has had is that as the Pakistanis improve their nuclear force and try to, of course, focus it more on India, they have moved to more very light, mobile, tactical nuclear weapons. Not unlike what we used to use, uh, you know, during the height of the Cold War when we were concerned that the Soviets would would come through the gap uh, in Germany. And uh, this is worrisome because small tactical weapons are easier to steal. And when they're on the road, they're easier for somebody to get at. And you're never quite sure of the loyalties of the army unit that's moving around. So if you happen to have people who have particular al-Qaeda or Taliban loyalties within that group, having a weapon that is small and movable is a lot more worrisome than having something that's stored away where the, you know, the nuclear cores are one place and the triggers are someplace else. The other difficulty that we've had in this, and John makes the right point, it's always very difficult to figure out where these weapons are. It's particularly difficult because the Pakistanis are concerned about not telling us uh, very much about them because they're afraid the biggest threat to their arsenal isn't al-Qaeda or the Taliban, but us that there is always some U.S. group SEAL team you know, right over the border. And that's why that RQ-170, the stealth uh, surveillance um, uh, plane that was over uh, the Abbottabad complex during the bin Laden raid, was particularly upsetting to the Pakistanis because they're thinking if they didn't see it hanging out over Abbottabad for hours on end, what are the chances they are going to see it hanging out over their nuclear complex? Well, do we do know how many nuclear weapons they have? Do we... Um, uh, we have a, I think, a solid dialogue with them, but the precise—I would probably guess that the precise numbers are more. Do our we estimate. know where they are? Do we think? I we don't. Do? I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't think I should probably comment on that. Mm-hmm. We we know where some of them are, and that was part of the disturbing element of an attack on a. Pakistani naval base that took place shortly after the bin Laden raid. You may remember there was a quite spectacular attack inside this naval base. Uh, It turned out that the base didn't have any nuclear weapons, but there were some nearby, and that got a lot of people's attention here. You write about the Arab Spring. Uh, What was the, I guess, I don't know exactly the word, but there's bureau. What was the administration's relationship to the Arab Spring? I mean, did we do much? Did we know much about it? Did it catch us totally off guard? Uh, Well, I think one of the most interesting things that uh, we had a chance to go uh, report out for uh, for the book was that President Obama had been pretty unhappy with the quality of the intel he had been getting about the possibilities that these regimes were weak or false. So. In uh, the summer of 2010, he um, commissioned a presidential study directive, which was conducted inside the White House, about the fragility of these regimes. And they didn't make it public at the time, uh, because for many of these regimes, you sort of don't want to advertise to them that uh, you're studying whether or not they could collapse. Bad public relations move. Um, But... uh, That study was well underway by the time the Arab Spring happened. 
And uh, there's a scene in the book where uh, Tunisia blew up, was obviously the first of the Arab Spring states to go. And the president is being briefed, uh, and he asks the question, what are the chances that this is going to spread to Egypt? And the answer came, very low, sir. Um, That didn't last uh, more than a couple of weeks. Um, Then Egypt happened, and uh, you'll see in the book uh, a bit of a transcript from a remarkable conversation, the last conversation between President Mubarak and and, uh, President Obama. And uh, this was the phone call after President Obama had watched Mubarak on TV and realized he wasn't getting the message. After being told by his aides, you know, he's going to begin to step aside, he gave this very defiant speech. So the president called him. There had been a a behind-the-scenes struggle within the Obama administration about whether or not to help push Mubarak out with Secretary Clinton and Secretary Gates saying, you know, you might not want to do this until you're sure who follows. And younger members of the administration who could sort of envision themselves out in Tahrir Square saying, no, you've got to get on the right side of history. And in this conversation, uh, President Obama says, you know, sir, I respect my elders. You've been running the country for 30 years since I was in college. But maybe it's time to move on. And Mubarak says, give me 10 days. President Nasser put something like this down. And it was sort of code word for, in 10 days, I can shoot most of these people, and, uh, and, and this whole thing will go away. And President Obama sort of pushes back and says, you know, I don't really think you understand what's going on in your own streets. And it was just this very poignant moment where you sort of see the, the rubber hit the road in the U.S. trying to ease an ally out. And I think Mubarak wouldn't have lasted whether the conversation took place or not, but it was just an interesting vision. What uh, what is the big difference between uh, Syria and Libya? You want to take the first shot of that? <laughs> well, just take that as a as a launching pad. Yeah. Well, I um, well first, uh, Syria has a has a more competent military. You know, the, uh, Libya was always a fairly incompetent military and a very small Praetorian guard, you know, that was, was really... So that was, a, that was an issue. Uh, I think, second, uh, this is a lot more complicated. There are a lot more things that get unhinged. I mean, if, if, if Libya uh, failed, the consequences weren't necessarily broad, but here we're worried about the future of Lebanon. We're worried about the future of Jordan. You know, I mean, it's a very fragile. So it could, it could spread much, much more widely. Uh, and it, there were, we were, we just, we got through Libya with luck. And I think the fear is that this is not. You can't count on luck as a strategy if you're going to do something like Syria. And at this stage, we'd rather not get out on front where we don't have core interests. There are certainly humanitarian interests. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, think that, I think it is a larger and more serious situation than we recognize here. And, uh, but it isn't compelling for anyone to want to put boots on the ground. And unlike, unlike the, uh, the Libya operation where Muammar Gaddafi had alienated all other uh, Arab leaders, 
even though the Syrians have alienated themselves, the Arab League is not giving an endorsement for military action the way they did with Libya. So I think there's a, there are some substantial differences. It would be a heck of a problem if we had to do something. What did you find out about it? Well, you know, I thought Kofi Annan put it very well over the weekend when he said, uh, you know, Libya, people were pretty sure, would implode. Syria, people were pretty sure, would explode. Mm -hmm. And so that's number one. Secondly, it's a reminder that geography still matters uh, in foreign affairs, that in uh, the case of of Libya, uh, we could see by satellite the Libyan troops moving across the desert and there was a, a moment to go get them with um, aerial bombardment before they got off into the cities. And that really did a huge amount of damage to the Libyan military. In the case of Syria, they're already in the cities. This is a civil war that's underway. Uh, there's no way to conduct a bombing raid without having horrific uh, uh, civilian casualties. Uh, so you don't want to do it from the air. Going, into the ground, going in on the ground has all of the problems that John described. And then you have the Russians, fundamentally, you know, they don't love Assad, and they, I think they would agree to take Assad and, and, and move him out. But they feel as if the United States hoodwinked them in the case of Libya, that they got a, passed a resolution and then used it to go well beyond the humanitarian mandate to force uh, Gaddafi out. And they have vowed they will not let that happen again. Question from the audience, right there. Do we have microphones? We get racist. Yeah, stand up and here comes the mic. Here's the mic, right? Uh, this is on regards to Olympic Games. Um, considering that China and Russia have their own cyber weapons capabilities, um, seems reasonable the United States had a lead, um, and but just how much of that lead um, was lost with the leaking? of the virus um, into the broader world? Um, You make a very good point. Uh, We're pretending here as if this is the early days of of cyber weapons, and I guess in many ways it is. I mean, we're sort of the equivalent of where we were in nuclear weapons between, what, 1945 and, say, 1955. I mean, we're in the, the early stages. Uh, But so far, the cyber weapons that we have seen used against the United States have been pretty much computer on computer. In other words, uh, a lot of people believe the Chinese or Russians, others, come in to lurk around in American computer systems, maybe look for proprietary corporate data, a lot of that, uh, try to get in at defense-related data, maybe airplane designs and so forth. There have been attacks on the Pentagon, on the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Uh, President Obama got a pretty big wake-up call when there was what's believed to be a a Chinese uh, effort to get into his campaign uh, computers in 2008. And I think the same thing happened to Senator McCain uh, Mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. It did. Uh, So uh, at least they were equal opportunity. Um, And then... Bipartisan. uh, What is that? Bipartisan. Bipartisan. Completely nonpartisan. Uh, and then, of course, there was the Google attack in 2009. But these have all been computer on computer. What made Olympic Games particularly fascinating was that this was one of the first sustained efforts we've seen. We've seen individual efforts before to go through a computer system of another country to affect infrastructure, to make the centrifuges blow up. The, the concept of the worm 
was to go in and speed up or slow down the Iranian centrifuges and unbalance them and thus make them explode. And these things are spinning at supersonic speeds. And if one blows up, you really don't want to be standing next to it. Uh, So uh, that was the effort here. And I think one of the concerns is that our own infrastructure is, of course, vulnerable, whether it's the utility system or the cell phone system or the air traffic control system. If I, but if I could just uh, uh, add just one little piece. I think what's, what's important about, about this, um, the, this was a code. This, this, was, this is not like your Internet stuff. I mean, uh, there are things that are going against the Internet every day. This was, a, this was designed to go against a proprietary, unique operating system that's used in industrial processes. The, this, uh, this code is used to run, uh, I don't know what the percentage is, you know, uh, 20, 30 percent of all of the industrial plants in the world. I mean, it's, you know, to run, you know, chemical factories. Run all, so th- th- what is unusual and what's, I think, ominous about this is that it, it, is, it is a code that is fundamentally used widely in industry. And you know, in the past, most cyber criminality, for example, would be try to break in, steal somebody's credit cards, and charge with them. This is a case where if you could get into a company's, uh, you know, the system that's running the chemical plant, and you can say... Uh, you know, send me $100 million tomorrow or I destroy your plant. I mean, we have a whole new dimension of just criminality that's going to be in front of us because of this. That's right. And there are some efforts to protect against that. I was out at a demonstration they did outside the Idaho National Labs where they have set up a sort of miniature chemical plant and they attack it each day and try to see whether or not you can respond to it. And, of course, in cyber attacks, the attacker has all of the advantages uh, and uh, in the one test that they showed to a group of reporters, in fact, uh, the attackers won the day. Now, what they were concerned about at that time, Stuxnet was already out, had been discovered, this was just last year that they did this, was that elements of the Stuxnet worm that got out from Natanz are now available to people, and they can sort of see how they're structured, and it's a little bit like finding sort of loose ordinance around, and they could try to reformulate it and send it back at us. Another question right here. Yes. Uh, so if we look at what's been happening both with um, what the United States, the policy that we've taken, um, what happened with the release of Olympic Games and then with bin Laden, there's this sense of back the Pentagon said a year, about a year and a half ago is we would, we would respond in a cyber way to kinetic warfare. So if somebody came at us kinetically, we would respond in a cyber way, but only if that happened to us. What the Olympic Games showed is that we actually did this proactively, and there have been some tensions around what we did with bin Laden as far as we went in aggressively now with Olympic Games. So I have have two questions to that. At what point does the international environment say, okay, enough from the U.S. because you're, you're taking actions and you've done this covertly? And what was the thought process from your perspective in understanding that knowing this would eventually get out, but being the one to sort of release this out initially, understanding the, the, the secrecy and the confidentiality from a national security perspective? Sure. Uh, very good question. Um, uh, first, the, in the bin Laden raid, for example, uh, there was no particular effort to cover up the fact that we were violating Pakistan sovereignty. In fact, the White House said that President Obama had promised during the campaign 
that if he ever knew where bin Laden was, he would go into Pakistan to go get him. And the Pakistanis objected to that then and, of course, objected when uh, the raid happened. And a lot of the book deals with, or some chapters of the book, the question of how the bin Laden raid really poisoned the well in what was already a, a pretty rough uh, relationship. And I think we'll be paying, uh, you know, we'll be playing that out for the next few years. Olympic Games is a little bit different uh, because it uh, demonstrates, as you say, that the United States is willing to go over sovereign boundaries to uh, use cyber weapons. And um, in fact, the boundaries become very hard to define when it comes to cyber weapons because cyber attacks happen all over the world. And you know there is some belief that attacks that might begin in China or Russia or some other place end up being launched from a third country. And, and that's part of the difficulty. So part of the question policy question it raises is, who is it, where is it that the United States is willing to go attack? To my, the question of, of my own uh, decision process in this, here was what I sort of went through. The Iranians already knew they had been attacked by a cyber weapon, and they'd already announced who they thought had been the attackers. So I don't think I was giving news to the Iranians. Um, the Times has a, uh, the New York Times has a pretty uh, set group of procedures uh, in many national security stories, and we did these with WikiLeaks as well, where we, we go to the government and say if there is something of uh, importance here affecting operational security, someone's life, a future operation, let us know and we will we'll try to you know, take that into consideration. Uh, and it's reasonable to assume that uh, you know, in all stories of national security nature, you try to have that, that conversation. So the big question was, could you raise the policy issue that you've raised here and make it clear the United States has already sort of crossed this Rubicon, as I quote someone in the, in the book of saying, without uh, giving away uh, uh, operational secrets? And I, I hope I, I walk that, uh, that line. Thank you. I'm Dr. Alula from Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo. Thank you uh, for both of you to talk about uh, what's going on in the Congo. So my question is, is there any agenda to stop the genocide in Congo? We lost more than 8 to 10 million people. And uh, very recently, just Rwanda invaded the Congo again uh, when looking for Bosco Tanganda, who is wanted by the International Criminal Court. It makes us believe that the rape of Congolese women and all those atrocities that is happening in Congo is part of U.S. business asset now. How do you see that, uh, uh, the hand of this situation? Thank you. I don't, I don't know why you're looking at me. Um, I, first of all, sir, I, I must confess to not be aware of this immediate issue that you've brought up. So I apologize for that. I'd be happy to get together with you and talk about it. I suspect that it is, I, I don't doubt that the people in the administration would be outraged by these actions. It's a case of probably that they've got so many things that they're working right now that it just doesn't rise to the level where they have to respond. But let me come and meet with you and learn more about it, and then and I'll see what I can do to help. Okay, thank you. Did you want to say? The only thing that I wanted to add here is you raise a, a question that I think the Obama administration is struggling with with all humanitarian interventions. Because after Libya, 
or mid-Libya, the president gave a, a very good speech, I think, that sort of laid out why the responsibility to protect is part of a, a mission for the United States, but one that has limits on it. And with Syria, we've discovered the limits. Chicago, uh, we've discovered the limits. But we've discovered the limits in many places around the world. And I think this is an area where they're still sort of struggling to figure out you know, what merits American intervention. Well, and, you know, honestly, the Bush administration argued that, you know, going into Iraq was responsibility to protect. That's right. In this case, a larger world, not just the... the so yeah, there's just cross-currents to these issues that are very hard to resolve and don't naturally resolve themselves. Okay. Any questions over here? Where? Right, way back there. Okay. Uh, Christoph Marshall from the German Daily Der Tagesspiegel. Thank you for your work, uh, David. I just would like to follow up on the question before the Congo question. Um, it was not only about the rules uh, you try to obey when it comes to national security. It's also the question how the world reacts to this kind of American action. And um, there is a study, a Pew study, coming out tomorrow. It's embargoed until midnight tonight, uh, so it will be interesting uh, to see the exact results, but you will not be surprised that probably the answer is the world don't like what they see. Most of your, uh, even allies, don't like. They didn't like Guantanamo, they don't like unilateral action with Stuxnet, they don't like um, drone war, for example. The exact uh, results you have to, to, to see tomorrow. The, my question now would be to follow up. Should the American government pay attention to that and to which degree when it comes to this two different goals. We want to be secure. On the other hand, we are not acting, we are not living alone on this world. We, we have to rely on partners as well and how does that affect our policy? Thank you. Well, you know, I think you're raising one of the fascinating paradoxes of the Obama presidency, which is um, I wrote this book because there have been a lot of surprises in the presidency. And one of the biggest surprises has been that the president has adopted techniques that he certainly didn't talk about during the campaign and certainly don't sound like engagement. Now, he's done the engagement as well. And his view has been, in the Iran case, for example, that you can't do engagement alone. You have to do engagement and pressure. The part of the pressure they talk about is sanctions. The part they don't talk about is the cyber side and, and other sabotage acts. Um, in the case of Pakistan, uh, it's particularly potent. I mean, just think of this contrast. The United States often says that uh, we don't want to just be dealing with the Pakistani military. We want to deal with a democratically elected Pakistani government and try to encourage a, a, uh, a culture of democracy. Well, the democratically elected Pakistani parliament, about, what, a month and a half ago, passed a resolution quite overwhelmingly to ban foreign drone strikes in their territory. And just by count, it appears that the United States has continued and by some count increased the pressure of drone strikes in recent weeks and months. So reconciling those two, um, trying to keep the pressure on while they are uh, also trying the engagement track is, I think, one of the fa fascinating balancing acts. And if it works, if this mix of pressure and diplomacy works, then President Obama, I think, will be able to say that he cut a new way in American foreign policy. If instead it creates as many resentments as it achieves successes, then you've got a, a much more difficult measurement. Mike, right there. Uh, yes, my question has to do with the cyber uh, 
part of your 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 presentation. Uh, my name? Oh, I'm Dr. Will Curtis from the U.S. Naval Academy. Uh, I have. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering about uh, the the uh, use of cyber threats and so forth as an instrument of statecraft. It seems to me that the Russians use that quite successfully in their near abroad. What, what do you think about that? Mm -hmm. what, what, this is a growing reality for, uh, for all of us. Uh, all, all, um, all sophisticated countries uh, are developing cyber tools some type, both for defense but also for offense. Uh, overwhelmingly, it's cyber espionage. I mean, I think that's overwhelmingly the, the activity that's underway by state organizations. Um, you know, it's, it's like all forms of new technology, and man has this capacity to find ways to use them, you know, coercively. And, and everybody is working on it. Everybody's trying to find a way to do it. So I think we are right to be thinking our way through it. We are trying to do it in a manner that's consistent with a democracy and a rule of law. Uh, I have no doubt that they went through uh, legal reviews when they were deciding. Uh, I'm not confirming what you wrote. I just, <laughs> uh, But I have no doubt that they went through a process, uh, just as we do with a kinetic weapon, with a weapon that blows things up. I have no doubt that we went through a legal review to uh, assure ourselves that the president was authorized to do this and that it was uh, that it was uh, appropriate, and I, I, all countries are now trying to develop these tools, and we really do have to develop. It doesn't mean we can't cooperate on trying to create a regime uh, where we can minimize uh, the risk posed by by cyber. And I'll just give you an example. I mean, we and the Chinese share an interest in not letting a third country get us into a war with each other. We certainly have an interest in not letting a criminal organization disrupt their financial system or our financial system. Uh, we each have an interest in not letting a terrorist organization use machines in their country against us and vice versa. So there are, there are still going to be patterns of cooperation that I think we can and will be developing with cyber at the same time that we're going to be developing for unilateral use if we have to. All right. One can, more question. Can I just yeah, sure. throw something very quickly in on that? Um, this is why it's important to begin a debate in this country about whether or not this is the kind of weapon we want to be using and under what rules. And I think clearly we're going to end up having to use cyber weapons just as we've had to use many other weapons along the way. It took us what, 20 years before we came up with a set of real rules about nuclear weapons. When you think that uh, General MacArthur was thinking about using nuclear weapons in Korea, there was discussion during the Cuban Missile Crisis 50 years ago uh, uh, this October about using nuclear weapons then. And so it, it took about 20 years. There's been a debate for 10 or 11 years now about the right rules about drones, and we're really still having that argument to this day. So I think there's no reason to believe it's going to be a very easy argument on cyber because in the case of nuclear, we've decided we're almost never going to use them unless the survival of the state is at stake. In the case of drones, we've decided we're going to use them just about every week because they're something of a precision weapon when we, when we need to. And cyber is somewhere in between. 
And the rules that you develop for nuclear and for drones don't always fit in cyber very easily. All right, this lady. Hi, thank you. Uh, Jamie Morgan with the Economist Intelligence Unit. Can you talk a little bit about the debate process that went on within the administration in deciding how um, to, in terms of the whole drone process, in terms of deciding to centralize that decision-making process at the NSC, um, and it seems to be an administration where the president considers moral, legal, and efficiency issues. You've talked about that balance, and and just shed a little bit of light on the rationale uh, that went into that decision. Thanks. That's probably a good question for, for both of us. Um, in the case of um, drones, as in cyber, I've been struck by the fact that you sort of see the two sides of President Obama here, the constitutional lawyer, who is very interested in limiting the way these weapons are used in cyber. He was constantly asking the question, uh, is there collateral damage that could happen? Are we sure we're not turning off the electricity to hospitals? Is this as narrowly directed at the Iranian nuclear program as it can be? In drones, you see a similar issue, I think, as they try to narrow the list and then ask this very hard question. If you have attack the top level of the al-Qaeda leadership or some other set of targets, and then the next level comes up, at what point do you stop using this weapon? Do you come to the conclusion that the people who are coming up may not be as direct a threat to the United States? And that's been a very complex set of of arguments, and I think what we learned from that terrific piece that um, Scott Chain and Joe Becker did, uh, and from Mr. Clydman's book uh, as well, is that that debate about where you draw the line is so complex that the president has wanted to get involved in it himself directly. Just, to, uh, you know, what we don't realize is these drone uh, attacks require a very large ground infrastructure because you've got to know, ex- you know exactly when the guy's getting in the car and when he's leaving and what the car is. And usually it takes a lot of operational infrastructure uh, to make these work. And that entails considerable risk to the country. So it's, it is appropriate that the president is involved in, uh, in these decisions because every one of them does entail uh, the uh, considerable reputational and operational risk facing the country. So I, I, I wouldn't, see, some people are trying to say, well, this is a, a president that micromanages war. I, it's, it's, this is quite different. And because of the nature of what it takes to be successful in this area, he has to be involved. All right. Well, that has to be our last question for TCU and CSIS. Thank you all. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Jack.